Um, I did gain ten magic points and nine willpower on Tuesday, which was pretty dope. Whoa, 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 whoa! Those, those magic points aren't permanent. You have to constantly kind of hang out with somebody. Is it the Cthulhu statue? Yeah. Awesome. I can now see what's going to be in John Montana's bedroom everywhere we go. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just picturing like someone like like something happening somewhere else, and they like break into your room to wake you up, and they just wake it. You wake up, and you're like. Cuddling like a teddy bear, like what is that? <laughs> That's what I picture. It's him like stroking its bald head, like oh, <laughs> who's my favorite Cecil Todd Johns? <laughs> Ask the GMs, episode twenty-six, Masks of Narlathotep, USA chapter postmortem. Good evening, this is Zach from Ask the GM's Podcast. Hoping you're having a great time, and we're here to talk to you about RPGs and board games, including our continuing breakdown of the great campaign, Masks of Narlathotep. Passing it on to Pat. Hey everybody, I'm glad to be here again, having a good time. Um, this evening we will be talking about three different campaigns of Masks of Narlathotep. So, you know, Brian and Sean's version might be slightly different than my own. And, uh, yeah. How about you, Brian? Um, I'm Brian, and also uh, John Montana. Uh, and uh, I'm excited to talk about it. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, but I'll hand it off to my character's partner in crime, Sean. Yeah, it's been fun and, and strange. But that's to be expected with Call of Cthulhu. It's, uh... And yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. This will be interesting. And passing it back to Brian. Thanks, Sean. I uh, just want to shout out uh, Cape Fear Games. Um, you know, it's a great place with great people. Um, if you're a tabletop enthusiast, gaming aficionado, card games, anything like that, um, check them out. They're pretty dope. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Pat, you weren't weren't in our first episode, and Brian, you also missed the end of the Peru chapter. But let's kind of give a recap of what happened in Peru. I uh, figured Pat and uh, Sean could start with that. All right. Well, as for um, my version of Peru, um, our adventures, they had been, you know, recruited by Jackson Elias in that bar. We had met, um, what was the name of our employer, Zach? Augustus Larkin. Augustus Larkin. Now, whenever we saw Augustus Larkin, he was very suspicious because he smelled of opium and he was constantly sweating and just, in short, looking unhealthy. Um, some highlights from our Peru chapter. We... We addressed Augustus Larkin in his hotel room and um you know we're like hey something's up um i know me and dave's character were up in the hotel room while ian's character Thaddeus Murdoch was outside shots fired uh me and dave had to handle business um Augustus Larkin <laughs> go ahead. I recall like Larkin's like eyes went like his eyes went like pitch black and outside it went from day to night and Dave was just like okay I'm just gonna shoot him now blam 
yeah, yeah. He went, face. he went, he went full witch, and we're just like, I um, I was playing my priest that was Joseph Baco Monday, and I'm like, oh, abhor the witch, like let's let's kill this mofro, and then you know, since he was doing some uh, spooky shit. We were like, okay, he might could come back from the dead. So we wrapped him up in his bed sheets. We poured uh, alcohol on him, set him on fire, and then we're like, wait a second, there's a burning body in this hotel room. So we eat him out. We eat him out the window into the street. Meanwhile, Thaddeus Murdoch is trying to explain uh, the gunshots as us moving around th- furniture in the bedroom, and then a burning body lands on the ground behind him. So that was a highlight. Um, there was the Casa Siri, which was their version of this like leech-like vampire, uh, which Augustus Larkin was. Um, there was a shootout in the street. There was a child Casa Siri, which was really freaking weird and creepy, because think a little vampire child chasing you. And that was uh, Rob and Ian's character that were having to deal with that. Then my we find that my favorite part of that is like Rob's like I'm just gonna gun down this child. It's like oh, you're gonna have fun explaining that to all the locals that you shot this child. It was a vampire. Yeah. It's like sure, man. It was a vampire. Yeah, it, it's just like okay, I don't know how we're gonna get out of this situation. They did score a really cool mirror. Um, oh no, no, that wasn't the cool mirror in the game, but it's, we'll it's get a mirror, it's a mirror mask. But yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we finally get about into the temple. Uh, we do some delving in this temple. We find a mummy. We uh, make sure we cut that thing's head off so there's no guff out of that. There's a lot of, like, weird smelly shit around this temple. I believe uh, some of our characters walked up into the top and looked down and saw some, like, hideous writhing maggots. So we decided to go, like, under the temple instead of through the top. Um, We ended up swimming through this giant pool of fat and maggots that were attacking us while we were swimming through a pool of fat. Uh, It made sense at the time, promise me. And we had this um, golden trinket that we put into this fresco on the wall that stopped the awakening of the sleeping god. So that was our recap for our Peru. And Sean, what about your explosive um, version? <laughs> Our Peru was, up until the end, was much more sedate than um, Pat's. We um, confronted Larkin in the hotel room, whereupon um, R.C.'s character uh, tried to perform hypnotism on him. But unbeknownst to the rest of us, uh, Nalatrotep had possessed uh, and and taken control over R.C. So we ended up packing Larson up to escape on a boat. But before that, some of our crew had gone to the library at the museum to investigate the uh, Mendoza, uh, Larkin's compatriot, who was a one of the um, Casasari vampires. And he attacked one of the staff there and one of our players there and escaped out a window and such like that. And and but we then packed Larson up on a boat and took him to the village and such where that's where we encountered the Casasari child and female, well, adult female one. And 
that they were ended during a gunfight with the villagers against them as they tried to actually grab Larkin. And then we proceeded on to the temple. R.C.'s possessed character was trying to help Larkin clear away so we could get into the underside of the temple. But two of our players decided to go up on top and drop dynamite down through the crack in the top of the temple where the Kasasari were puking their fat, ingested fat, into the temple. And that released the Maggot God. Yep. And and his mighty sanity loss with the D20 resulted in a one. Yep. <laughs> so we started gunning him up and throwing sticks, at, more sticks of dynamite at him. And luckily he was, I think you said the book said, stupid and unable to cast spells. So it's we spe- were Yes, it does specifically say this. It's an idiot and it doesn't have spells. Like, got it, okay. So we actually ended up blowing it up. After getting burned with some acid. So that's always fun. And such. How does everyone feel like how Peru works is like just an intro chapter one to a campaign or to call it Cthulhu in general? I think it works well. It kind of has all the elements, but nothing is so powerful as to blow a a novice player or a novice character out of the water without at least a chance to hold their own ground. Yeah, um, there's a handful of things I really like about Peru um, as far as like a starting session for just getting into Call of Cthulhu. You know, you get some interesting things like, oh, these Casasiri are vampires but there's a twist on them like they're kind of like leech like things instead so that and you know out the gate interacting with a uh, maggot god you know you're working with um extra planar things and um as far as how the peru chapter applies to the whole mask of gnarly type experience um from what I believe Zach told me before, that Peru wasn't initially a chapter in in Mask, the original write-up of it. But um, what I think is important about it is, one, it introduces you to Jackson Elias's character, like on a professional level, like, yeah, you're working with them, you're chumming with them. Um, and, you know, it's the chapter itself has a... Um, it's got a little bit of action. It's got, you know, some old temple dwelling. So it, it touches on a lot of things that you would expect to come out of a Call of Cthulhu campaign. And That's... Brian. Oh, sorry, Sean. Oh, no. I was just going to say it's got a very Indiana Jones flavor. Yeah. The whole thing. I don't think I can really add any more to it. I, I mean, I think it is a really good chapter. I think it's a great introduction. Um, obviously, it wasn't there, so I've heard about it. But hearing both of the, you know, Pat's story as well now, you know, they obviously got the same thing done in a different way, and I, I dig that by principle. And Pat, you are right. It was this is the newest addition to like the campaign. It was added for the new printing. It was also written by Scott Doorward, who's from the Good Friends of Jackson Elias podcast who, in addition to help designing 7th edition, also wrote a little adventure known as 
Dockside Dogs. Yeah, and it's funny that the name of the podcast is Good Friends of Jackson Elias because, um, you know, spoiler alert, as we're going to get to later into this episode, um, Jackson Elias does get killed. And say you were to start there versus in Peru, you wouldn't have a chance to make a friendship with the Jackson Elias character, which I think is important to, like, characters that aren't so much into solving the mystery for the money, but more so vengeance for their friend. Or at least that was the case for one of my two characters. Yeah, there's even a, there's an old Kickstarter project that was like a companion book that went with the campaign. Not, it wasn't from Chaosium, it was a fan-made thing. And even in that book, they're like, hey, you got to do an, an adventure before you do New York. Like, the party has to have a reason to like Jackson. Yeah, and whoever thought that did fantastic, brilliant job. But it also points to a flexibility with the adventure, where, say, you were pressed for time. You knew you didn't have very long time to run the whole, you know, the adventure. Is that the Peru chapter, though, could then possibly be kind of just glanced over and, you know, told as a backstory to the characters, you know. Or conversely, you could just run that, and then and if you had to take it a break, you could come back to it way later and then, like, refresh the characters. And it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yep. Because there's a five-year gap between when that happens and then the true campaign starts. And it's basically kind of um, be- between the f- in the five-year gap, I think it's assumed that your character is kept in contact, like uh, at least pen pal with Jackson yeah, Elias. Jackson writes letters or telegrams to you, yeah. Yeah. Also, I've seen online and some of the um, Discord groups for um, Call of Cthulhu and such like that is a lot of GMs talk about like, oh yeah, you know, we wanted to make this the whole focus of our campaign. So they went, they fit in several other not dealing with Nylothrotep adventures in that five-year period to build up a greater camaraderie, some with Jackson, some without Jackson, and such like that, to add further background and into the campaign of the characters and Jackson and working together. Yeah, yep, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, because I think um, what I myself, whenever I'm building campaigns, and I think I've seen in other campaigns, is it's hard to manage the call to action. Like, there has to be the call to action for your character's drive to want to do things. And I just think that helped the whole mask, you know, with this Peru chapter. Um, Zach, I got a off question. What if um, Sean and Brian's group did not kill that maggot god <laughs> and just ran away. How would have that uh, unfolded? The book accounts for stuff like that. It would have just been bad. Um, I think they, I think they take like a negative twenty sanity loss for like letting it out <laughs> and just and just farting off like, oh, it's somebody else's problem. Meanwhile, the residents of Peru are like, fuck. And by someone else's problem, you'd probably be like the Peruvian military. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, different campaign path. Technically, in um, 
in Warhammer Fantasy, the big campaign we were playing over there, um, if you let the if you let the major city that the first major city you're in, not Aldorf, but the the one where you go to the like the carnival, if you let the yeah. chaos portal get opened, that's just a fact. Like the whole campaign, it's just that happened. Oh shit! There's a, there's an open chaos portal in there, and like you know, flamers come out, and you have to deal with it, even if that's your ass just running away. Failure exactly. is always an option. Since we um, we've touched on Peru here, shall we move on to New York? Yep. So yeah, all the players get a nice little telegram from Jackson. It says have information concerning Carl expedition. Stop. Need a reliable investigative team. Stop. Please meet January fifteenth, New York. Stop. Jackson Elias. And then I'm of the opinion that I always assume, hey, if we're going to go meet Jackson and he meet he mentions this Carl expedition. Of giving the initial newspaper articles to the party to kind of wet their lips in terms of like, ooh, this is what we're looking into. And there's a whole series of newspaper articles. I think it's like nine of them. And it talks about this mysterious expedition, this millionaire steel magnet playboy, his photographing like ex-girlfriends with them, this crazy uh, Englishman who's who's into Egyptology, his psychologist. And then his like strong man go with him, and then they never come back. Yeah, the was, uh, the the first party, so to speak. Yeah, I've I've definitely heard it described like that, and I like that concept of like technically in terms of like positions of like career roles. It does basically sound like a Call of Cthulhu party. It does. How does everyone feel about the initial newspapers? I think they help. I think that they set that tone. Yeah, I would. Um, well, as far as like um, the player aid and just the pieces that you got from that box set of mask, Zach, um, it being the newspaper clippings were just really fun. Just just to hold and look at because not only did it have the articles on the Carlisle expedition as like the expedition chronologically went along. Um, but it also had other articles that were um, time appropriate for the setting. And it was just kind of cool to see what else was going on in the world, especially from like a history perspective, which kind of gets you more inundated in the setting. And, um, you know, it was cool seeing the reflection of possibly your own party in this other party that went missing. So there's that impending doom or mystery that's, uh, you know, shrouding everything. And, um, yeah, you you just, once you have faces, you know, to the story, uh, you can start, you know, pulling apart all their different character story. Because, you know, as, as there's more info dumps, um, you start getting, like, psychological profiles of people. Yep, and then there's the introduction to the city. This is, of course, New York City. This is where I feel I could like, strengthen my role as a, as a game master. I probably should have introduced the city a little better. I covered, you know, the sights, the sounds, the fact that it had snowed a whole bunch, but I think I should have probably played some traffic music or something and really get, like, the mood in with the party. But it's also nice to explore, like, you know, early 1925 New York City. 
Yeah, because there's, or I was going to say there's major things going on in the 1920s, like prohibition was a big thing that we had to uh, deal with in the campaign. Yep. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like the New Yorkers didn't like me very much. I, I got in late and like... That's because you're from Chicago. Well, I mean, also with our group, uh, my character was coming from Egypt and you were coming from Chicago. The closest one was RC. And then... Uh, no, the closest one, closest one was Dylan because he was living in the city. True, but they weren't there for the. Well, Dylan was. That's true. Dylan was there for New York, or the initial part of New York, and then um, Jess's character, Celine, was the one that came in later in the New York part. And then for Pat, your party, if I recall, like at least your second party. You had to come from, I don't know if, you, yeah, you were in Rome, if I recall, originally, like, at that time, not all the time. Yeah. I mean, Lindsay, Lindsay was from New York, and then I think Dave, with his crazy engineer, was from Georgia. The rest, I don't remember. Yeah, Dave was from Georgia. Um, me and me and Lindsay were both from London. That's what I um, yeah. But I, I was at the Vatican at the time. Um, and, like, you know, we, me and Lindsay kept in contact. And I want to say Ian and Rob were from the States. I want to say Ian uh, was at he was, maybe a local college. Yeah, Ian was from upstate New York. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, yeah, that's where everyone was from. But we, we all had to come in, you know, different times and come in in, in from the snow to, uh, you know, Jackson. Obviously, this message wasn't... It was under duress, you know. So yeah. we all showed up wondering what's going on. Yeah, so the party shows up. The initial intro is just, hey, you, you show up the door, you feel dread knocking the door, and then that's what happens. Um, how do you guys feel about, like, approaching the door? Because technically in the campaign, like, you don't know what's behind that door. So, like, if, if you wait a while, technically some people get away and some clues get away. Yeah. Um, I think the little bit of clues that we had about, you know, some of the noises and such going on behind the door and stuff. And, and it was one of those situations that I can see are going to happen with greater frequency as the campaign goes on is where, okay, this is what you are experiencing. You have to make a decision right now. You can't sit there and go, well, you know, we're going to wait it out. Per se, or you got to make that decision, you know, or you can wait it out, but you have to live with the consequences, right? And I don't know how Pat's group did with the attackers on Jackson, but with our group, there were none of them survived. Um, I think the true or the same was true for both iterations. Are the different games because I know one game I was in um, when I was playing Tennessee Terry. You know, everybody will know that me and Brian both have knockoff Indiana Jones, and I'd bet most people that ever played Call of Cthulhu at some point in time in their career might have a knockoff Indiana Jones. But um, 
that uh, with Tennessee Terry, he kicked down the door and guns blazing like, you know. Uh, and I want to say in our other group, um, uh, we had another player with us that had a Thompson and pulled that out and like fanned it across the room. But, you know, same net results, uh, bloody tongue cultist dying and everybody scrambling to get uh, get clues. But I believe the guy that was wielding our the Thompson, he was an ATF agent, so he actually talked to the police in that iteration. Does that sound right, Zach? I thought he was a mobster, but I can't remember. What is an ATF? Because I don't think they existed at that. That is also accurate. The ATF wasn't around then. Yeah. So yeah. Or maybe did they have people that like uh, followed up on prohibition stuff? Prohibition yeah. agents. Yeah, prohibition agents, treasury officer, tax secret, revenue, secret service, or member of the secret service. Yeah. FBI was around, but didn't have arresting powers at that point. Either way, uh, the party eventually opens the door and finds Jackson murdered. Horribly, by the way, like his intestines are ripped out. Like, not not a cool time. Yeah. And then it's, depending if they fight off the three attackers or not, like, there could be a cool chase down a rickety fire escape, maybe a car chase. And then there's all the clues that are left in Jackson's hotel room, which may or may not matter. But it's called a Cthulhu. If you get told it's a clue, it usually does. Where I think, you know, we kicked down the door, we dealt with the bloody tongue, and you described, um, you know, Jackson's mutilation. And I believe one of our players was like, is he okay? Is he gonna make it? <laughs> and it was like, No! No, I th- I even think in this recent play, like someone's like, "What do you do medicines?" Like I don't think you realize, like his intestines are like outside of his body. I think that was Dylan. That was like, I try to patch him up. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just scooping. dump that back in there. <laughs> <laughs> smoke, smoke this the cigarette. You'll feel better. Come on, Jackson, just walk it off. <laughs> well, the funny thing is with our group was. The fact that I, if I remember correctly, Brian, didn't you try whipping? And that's one of the places that you hit. Um, RC, RC in the back of the leg, yeah. Yep. Sure did. You went, to, you went to attack with the whip. You knocked RC to the ground. So my character, who was like the oldest character in the party, he's a 60 year old man, and got into a knife fight with the one cultists in the room and killed him and then gunned down the two on the um, fire escape with some really good lucky shots. Like I say, like given the fact that like you're not the combat monkey, like you're like I'm the old man skill monkey. Yep. <laughs> but I'm like everybody's like, oh I don't have anything in combat stuff. So I'm like, yeah. <laughs> well, I would have shot, but we were trying to be quiet. So that's why I went for like the whip. I'm trying to disarm somebody. It's okay though. Is it okay? I, I did tell Jackson that we were going to avenge him. As he was well, dying. One of these episodes you will actually hit an opponent with the whip. You have yet to do that, so Is it gonna be by choking him out? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Coming up behind him and using it as a girl. Now, 
You never claim to be the real Indiana Jones, so you know you're you're par for the course. I think. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's a um, it's a work in progress. Indiana didn't start off, you know, using his whip very well. I assume. Well, I mean, hey, even in the first movie, he's using the whip, driving the crowd around, and then the big guy steps out with the sword, and what does he do? He whips out the pistol and shoots the guy down in the street. Yep. Thank God for dysentery. There was actually supposed to be a big fight scene. It's like, no, no, this works better. Did so, Indy yeah, ever pistol whip somebody? I'm sure he did, right? Uh, he probably has. I know there was the big fight then in the bar in Nepal or Tibet where he and the big guy are wrestling about the machine gun and that's where the German guy is like, shoot them, shoot them both. Shoot, yeah, like, shoot, like, like, shoot through the guy, yeah. <laughs> yep, and the Big guy and Indy together operate the submachine gun to gun down the German guy with the submachine gun. So going over some of the clues you guys found, there's the matchbook to the Stumbling Tiger Bar, which is on 10 Lantern Street in Shanghai. Yeah, that that was pretty cool seeing the match, actually having the actual book of match, or box of match. What was the contents of the photos, Zach? Oh, there's uh, the photo of the boat that has a name that can't be read, but it looks like it's by some junks in some Asian port that can't be 100% identified in the photo. Which is another great thing, because we're all passing around this photo like, oh, oh, wait, no, those those buildings are, like, uh, stylized as if they were, like, built in China, so this this photo must be in China. And then I think we're getting half the boat name, and we're all like, oh, you know, it could be this. It could be that. Oh, man. You know, like, it was it was so cool that we're actually trying to do, like, actual detective work. Yep. There's also a, little, a letter from Cairo, Egypt, about the streets of jackals and some, you know, savory goods, unsavory goods, rare artifacts being procured from Mr. Warren Bassart. Mm-hmm. And I think this particular moment is a very crucial moment to the entire campaign because this is a globe-trotting campaign, and these clues point all over the globe. Yeah, this is this this is the if you're playing like a video game, like all these objectives has appeared on the map. Like, look at this or look at that. That uh, was probably the biggest info dump I've ever seen in a role play. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. I mean, there's there's one technically that we have in this campaign in the same chapter, but in terms of different information, yeah, from like different sources. There's the business card from the Penhue Foundation, which we're kind of resolving now in the game. We just talked about the photo with the ship in it. There's the business card to Emerson Imports, and on the on the back it has a name of Silas Nakwane. There's the letter from Harvard University talking about a missing book. And then there's a, a pamphlet for Tonight Only, The Cult of Darkness in Polynesia and Southwest, Southwest Pacific. Yeah, the uh, all of that and then the ensuing investigation also. Um, now, I don't know. So, Pat, did you did your guys stick around and talk to the police or did you guys skedaddle for the police? In, 
in one in one campaign we skedaddled and another one uh like i said we had that guy that was the prohibition agent and we stuck around and he talked to them for us but um i believe when actually yeah 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 because um the police is where we got our kind of next set of clues. I vaguely remember Thaddeus uh, about like Hilton Adams, and um, yeah, Lieutenant I, Pool, Lieutenant Pool arrives, and depending on if you're there or not, and if you're polite or not, he'll give you some basic info like, "Hey, this is like a series of murders that has happened before. The last guy that, or the most recent guy that they had convicted for, it's on death row. His name's Hilton Adams." Now. Zach, was this the police that tooled up uh, Thaddeus Murdoch? Like, I forget the situation, but it was basically... No, that, that's Adam later. Poole. That's that's the fourth precinct. Captain Poole, I think, is from the seventh. Oh, I got you. Okay, so that was another time. Or the fourteenth. The corrupt guys are in the fourteenth. Yeah, the corrupt guys are in the fourteenth. Yeah, he basically gives you a little additional lore, like, hey, these have been happening for a while... There's someone at the New York Times called uh, Rebecca Schosenberg. She's looking into it. And Hilton Adams was charged. And maybe the original investigation was corrupt. Maybe it wasn't. But, you know, he can't really say anything about it because it's a different precinct. Also, if you're going to smear a police captain, that's not a good good idea to do without some backup. So so usually after this, like the party will break down and they'll split into, like, what do we want to investigate first? Uh, does anyone want to lead this, or I can pick up some topics? Do we want to Scooby-Do it? <laughs> well, I mean, I remember the big thing that we got, I mean, we did some investigating with things like, in our group, we called up Harvard, they let us know about the book missing, and what the book was, and such like that, and there were some other things, but the big info dump that we got after that was our investigation was Dylan's character um, getting a hold of the uh, psychologist's report Dr. Robert Robert Houston's psychology report on Roger Carlton. Yeah, that was a huge you know, kind of set the whole thing in motion about what we were dealing with. That's really... That, um... The the medical file that we're speaking about here, um, it was probably one of my favorite props of the whole set because this this thing was thick. I I don't know how many pages was it, Zach? Like thirty? I don't think it was thirty, but I definitely like in this recent playing. I think we spent an hour just reading it. Yeah, yeah. it was chunky, but yeah, well. it, it wasn't an hour of like. You know, um, we spoke on it on our podcast before where it's like the DM just reading the text box to you. It was very enticing. It made you want to keep reading the next because as you read it, you were following along the mental breakdown of um, Roger Carlyle. And then you were seeing all the characters around him and how he interacted with them because he was a pivotal member of the Carlyle expedition, hence the name. But I mean, you also like see like Robert Houston's kind of breakdown, and Pat, you're right. Like, it wasn't just me reading it. I'm a big fan of like cycling handouts around, so not one person has to read. Because one, it's a lot of stress on that person in terms of like, hey, this is supposed to be a fun activity, not like 
you know, not work. Also, if you hear the same voice for a long, long time, some people kind of zone out. Yep. And also, it's kind of like the whole school thing of where, you know, it's like, well, well you read paragraph so-and-so, and you read, and you read next, and you read. By doing that, also, you're having to pay attention because you need to be ready to go when your turn comes around. And so it gives you that anticipatory, you know, participation type thing element to keep you involved. Because, I mean, let's face it. Yes, it, it, I agree with Pat. It, you know, it's intriguing. You want to know what's happening next. But it's also quite easy to start to zone in some of the little parts and stuff like that. But by knowing you're going to be the next one to read, you got to be ready to go. And that helps keep your focus. So. That and all the phallus funnies we were making. Yeah, he was a Freudian. Yeah, he's a Freudian. Yeah, there is a lot of phallic humor to be had, or opportunity for phallic humor in that section. It's very stiff competition. Yeah, because we the the insights we got to Doctor Houston is you know he was a Freudian, so you know with our um, modern uh, psychology uh, of us as players, and we're just like you know laughing because it's like. Okay, this guy's a little bit of a crock. But, um, you know, not only is he diagnosing uh, Roger Carlyle, but we're also seeing Dr. Houston's characters in his diagnosis because, you know, he, he's talking about getting close to Roger, and Roger has a lot of money, and how being in Roger's inner circle has been very financially uh, good for him. So... You know, not only is he a little bit of a crock, but he's also, you know, just a tag-along kind of guy that's there for the money. Well, eventually it reaches a point where it's like, you know, he breaches, like, professional ethics. He's like, hey, I, I'm, I'm at the club with Roger, or I'm playing tennis with him. He's like, no, man, you're his, psychi- you're, you're, you're his psychologist. You need to back off a little bit. Yeah, he definitely becomes a, a chum with his patient. Well, the one thing is, also is, though, you have you do have to look at it in a more historical context in the sense of that it, they didn't have as strict of you know patient doctor separation as we do now that's and this is the time period where it establishes why we needed that you know in our modern medical practices is and stuff and also for the time freud was cutting edge edge you know i mean he was Freud and Jung were, you know, they were the two contesting ideas on psychology. All your alienists, that's what who they studied was those two, primarily. Oh, and you also got to see um, Dr. Houston's despise of the other big influential person in Roger Carlyle's life. Was it, it wasn't, what was the, 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 the witch doctor lady um uh, who's, initially, who's initially called Bune, but is later pronounced as mararu yes mararu and how dr houston's wholly opposed against mararu but roger's getting influenced quite a bit by her and she's one of the members of the carlisle expedition that you know people debate whether she was there or not well, the so fact that she, she she doesn't appear in any of the newspaper articles, the fact that she's African American and the rest of the party isn't, and rich white people, that's not really. It is a commentary on racism. But that's not what the game's really pointing at, but it is there. 
um, even recently in the New York chapter, we had someone from the Penny Foundation be like, she just ran off with some money. She's not a big deal. Yep. And because at that point in time in history, a wealthy white organization like the Penn Hugh Foundation would have written her off as being inept and unable to truly, you know, influence and, you know, direct such a scheme. Because that uh, would, you know... Especially for Sir Arbery Penhue and then Roger Carlyle. Now, also in that medical report, we also saw the doctor dealing with his own scandal. Um, I forget what the woman his, that... His the, lover, his lover, like, killed, her, killed herself. Yeah. I recall. So you you also see that side of the man as well. Now, one thing Pat's group was able to do that your group wasn't able to do is they were actually able to meet with Eric Carlisle. Tell me Thaddeus was responsible for this. Um, I, I mean, Thaddeus I was there. Think... I don't think he was responsible. I don't think he was responsible. I think it was Lindsay that kind of followed up this lead and we just kind of went with her. And, you know, obviously, Erica Carla has a lot of money. She had a lot of guards. I believe they were armed as well. Uh, she was out in the country. It was one of those go into the mansion and, you know, drop your weapons off at the door kind of deal, pat you down. Real serious, really, you know, everything's on lockdown kind of stuff. Um, I remember we go in there. There was a painting that just... It caused some uh, some images in our mind. Um, do, do you remember the details of that painting, Zach? I don't recall there a painting. I recall there's a book in the safe you guys got access to. Yeah, there there was that very interesting book. Um, was that the book that was checked out from the library? No, it's a different book. Because I remember this book talking about satyrs in the woods and candlelight rituals and just some really wild kind of shit. Yeah, you're you're confusing that with one of the paintings in England. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um no, oh, the the item in the book was the was life as a god. Oh, okay. It was its external angles were magnificent and the most strange, and by their hideous beauty, I was absorbed and enthralled, and I thought myself of daylight fuels that had been adjusted to the howling aims of the rooms and mistaken. I laughed at the glory that they had missed, the twisted doors, the parallel throne of darkness. I, I came with all the severance of, of humility to gaze upon this amazing celestial majesty. And when the six lights were lit and the great words were said, he came in all his grace and splendor from the higher planes. And I longed to sever my own veins and spill my own life so it might throw into such a being and make a pact with a god. You yeah. definitely did not read that. <laughs> yeah, that was, one, that was pretty much the only clue you guys didn't get in New York. I remember Erica Carlisle being... She was altogether mm, a little hesitant, but she didn't give give off any negative vibes. Um, 
But she was also interested in, you know, the happenings of her brother. And she was very dismissive as in like, yeah, they're, they died. It's for sure. You know, they got ate by cannibals. She's, she spent a lot of money in that in her own expedition into it and no good evidence otherwise. Yeah. Also, she's probably very glad her brother's dead because he kind of sucked. Yeah. And she got a lot of money. So. <laughs> Let's see. But after I, this. Or I was going to say, I know we did, uh, after reading that book, we were focusing really hard on that, like, what was it, lighting seven candles part and seeing the throne. I don't know. I, I know we were trying to tear that apart for clues to something we might have to do later. And I'd say more on it, but these guys have to get to that part. So Yeah. No spoilers, Pat. I don't think I've spoiled anything yet. <laughs> yeah, after this, uh, you know, you guys look into the, the Hilton Adams investigation. You go try to meet with his wife. Pat, I think you guys just went to the Lafayette Theater to meet her, if I recall. It's been a while. Yeah, we we met her at the theater. We we got her contact information from um, that lady at the New York Times. And what's that? Rebecca Schosenberg. Yeah, Rebecca Schosenberg. And uh, she agreed to meet us. And, you know, Hilton Adams' wife was super cautious, su- super on edge. So we felt like there was you know, more danger looming around the area that had maybe eyes on us that we weren't so sure about, you know, more cultist activity. Yep. And then you guys eventually when you're in Harlem, get arrested and brought to the 14th precinct, which also happened to this party. Yep. Now we were arrested outside the Juju house after we had gone and confronted them at the Juju house. And that's where, and, RC was actually able to um, hypnotize the corrupt cop. I see. How'd that go? He got some information from him. Yeah, he was able to get some basic information, mainly that, you know, that, hey, they're just running a, the Juju House is just running a speakeasy and whatever evidence they had on Hilton Hilton Adams, like maybe didn't appear in in the records or whatever, got tossed in the river. And then we. We set up with Schosenberg the uh, meeting with Hilton Adams' wife. Which didn't work so, out. I mean, it kind of did, but it didn't. I, li- I like your kind of did statement. I mean, she did get taken. Yeah. Yeah, his wife never got taken in our campaign. <laughs> yeah. Which led to a big confrontation for us underneath the Juju house. Yeah, for Pat's group, uh, Ian decided to mouth out to Captain Robson, so they took him into another room and, like, beat the crap out of them. But also, when they tried to, like, leave Harlem, they noticed they were getting tailed. So, like, Ian, like, got in his own car and, like, drove into a restaurant and then had, like, the valet pull the car around and, like, just bailed on the car entirely. So the cultists were following this poor valet somewhere. Now, didn't his car blow up? I think eventually, yeah. Yeah. But Ian, uh, his character, Thaddeus Murdoch, he was doing... Um, Sorry, sir, the, the third? 
Yeah, Thaddeus Murdoch the third. Sorry, he uh, he was doing something that was kind of a new archetype for a character for me in my mind. His character kept on being a massive distraction, so that the rest of the party could get down and dirty and do what they needed to do, and it was actually very helpful. <laughs> they want the arc party has nobody that can drive. Nope. Oh my god. <laughs> I don't recall even Ian being great at driving either. No, no. And then there's the audience has wrecked more cars than anybody else I know. That's Rob <laughs> as that is. No, Rob as somebody impersonating Thaddeus. <laughs> true, true. Um, I know so. Y'all's time at the Juju house was a, a massive um, fight and undertaking, y'all say? Did yeah, we, shit show? We burned the monster, which was coming out of the thing. They had the rock lifted. Yeah, the big and hole in the ground. In the basement. Now, did you guys just kick in the front door and, and get it, or what? Well, we snuck in. And okay. then we encountered the old man in his room. And RC was wrestling with him because he jumped off the ceiling onto RC and stuff like that. And with Dylan. And I think myself and Celine, because we had the two stealthiest characters. Every one of our characters ha also has stealth. That's one thing. <laughs> Yep. Super high is. stealth, decent spot hidden, no psychology. One character has psychology. Out of 60, isn't too bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah we snuck down and picked the lock on the door to the main room. That's where I grabbed the lantern and threw it into the hole with the creature. But we were facing, what, I think six cultists? Six cultists, four zombies, and the head priest. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So um ours went quite different. Um Oh Dylan while well, RC was wrestling with the old man. Dylan put his gun up to the old man's head and blew it off. <laughs> so RC was just standing there sprayed in gore from the guy's head disintegrating. Yeah. Ours uh ours went a bit smoother. Um I did have I don't know if this was at the Spice House in London or here. You, you know that moment my uh, priest, Zach, slit that guy's throat and it's like... That's, oh, in, wait. London. That's in London. Okay, okay, okay. So that wasn't here. <laughs> Different time. Well, uh, our listeners will find out about it later. Or maybe they've already heard about it. Um, but that being said, we snuck in pretty easily. Um, I... I remember a pillow being put on somebody's head while they're sleeping and uh, it getting blown off with a shotgun. That's also London. Jesus also London. <laughs> Either way, it went in smooth. We crept down to the basement where the rock was holding the creature at bay. We did have to deal with those zombies. Um, there were no cultists there at the time. Um, and I know we got some of those artifacts. And... I, uh, I I recall you guys like cracking, like turning the chain on the stone, like just like a foot and hearing it like wail and be like, we're just going to put that down now. Yeah. We're like, mm, no, this sounds like a bad idea. 
And then we leave, and then we get in a phone booth and give an anonymous call, a uh, tip-off to the police that shit's going down there. And then we hear from the distance uh, tons of gunshots coming from that general direction and, like, maybe an explosion. <laughs> so, essentially what you guys had to do, we had the police do for us. Well, we picked up some good skill checks out of that. And then uh, jumping around a little bit, one, uh, there's Jackson's funeral. Nice little somber affair, but the party gets to meet his publicist and his lawyer. This is where Ian notoriously gave a 93-minute eulogy outside in the nice January winter snow of New York. And I made the the mistake of not making everyone roll con so they didn't die. And the eulogy wasn't even, it was maybe like 10% about... Uh, oh, no, Ian, Ian's like, Jackson would have been so so awesome if you didn't know me. Me, me, me. Me, me, me. Yeah, that was 90% of the eulogy. <laughs> Let me tell you how I'm awesome. <laughs> and then I told Jackson, do this. <laughs> you should, like, write a book about that. Like, write several. Thanks. I, would, I never would have thought about that. But um, make sure to tell your kids, Jackson, to buy into Apple products. What? <laughs> Trust me, I'll make them later. Look, they bought all these Fujis, but I don't know what they would the applesauce, I guess. I don't know. But the main point in uh, connecting with the lawyer is one, he is the funder of the expedition. So that's majorly, or, well, funder of solving jackson's death or yeah, carrying Jackson, on jackson's will is basically like hey i'm leaving 50 grand solve this case yep and which then... my character has been funding the expedition <laughs> i need to turn in some receipts to the foundation <laughs> that's the right answer get turn in those receipts but i mean this is the narrative hook if say your character is you know, a little bit less savory. Like, oh, 50 grand, that's a shit ton of money. You know, I can risk my life for that. <laughs> that's how I feel. My credit rating's shite, but I did just find $10,000, so it's pretty dope. Yep. And apparently you're almost as good as a bartender as an archaeologist. Way better archaeologist. Uh, but there's also all the notes in uh, the publisher's office. It's like Jackson's like written notes. Yeah. Just him talking about like all the people he talked to, the fact that he saw Jack Brady alive, even though he was reported dead. Also, that's where we saw that strange chessboard diagram that Jackson had. On that cra- which is on his crazy like last letter where like, they're all out, out to get me. I need to escape to New York. Yeah. Yeah. Never did figure out what that meant. And I would say um, Jackson Jackson's uh, paranoia in those notes really kind of drill in like, oh, there's many people abroad that were against him and now will be against us by our association. So, the, you know, his paranoia essentially spreads to the group a little bit like, oh, Anybody could be against us and watching us. But it also like reaffirms some locations like, oh, like Shanghai gets mentioned 
and then like parts of Africa and Egypt get mentioned, London gets mentioned. So all the locations are already kind of like pinging on your video game equivalent of a map. Like, okay, there's some other places we need to go. Yep. Yeah. One thing I will say England added was also the Australia connection. I don't remember that showing up much in Jackson's. It it shows up in the show, the the occult lore about uh, Peloponnesia. I don't think we made it to that show. Uh, RC called the called the guy. He was the Australian guy at oh. Arkham. Oh, okay. Which, as an additional note to like this campaign, swag players or game masters, make sure one of your players has a little notebook to be the brain for the party, because this is a big campaign, and if you're expecting everyone to remember everything, you're gonna fail. No way. Yeah, there's a there's so much to digest, especially early on when we get like that that large. Right after Jackson dies, we get all that information. It's it's very well, cool, but it's a lot. Well, it's kind of like a three-pong thing. It's the nine or 12 newspaper articles. Like, okay, I'm hearing the names a whole bunch. I'm hearing the locations, but I need to hear it a couple times to get everything down. And that's everything in his, in his hotel room. And then, okay, well, these connect to those locations, but I don't know how. There's all the additional research you guys did in the Carlisle expedition, like finding out like a patient masters like had an abortion and everything going on with Dr. Houston, Jack Brady and such. So that's that's background information, but it still connects. And then it's all the stuff in Jackson's notes. This is also why I recommend using Miro. This is another game master tip. It's a whiteboard app so your players can draw red lines to stuff like a murder board. Yeah, I was going to say, if you want to go over top with this and have, like, all the player aids, get a cork board, and, you know, I would set up, you know, a uh, a rap sheet for every member of the Carlisle Expedition, and then I would, you know, pin locations for, you know, London, America, Shanghai, Australia, Nairobi, so on and so forth. Egypt. Egypt. And then what was found in the Juju house is you found a, a couple books, like evidence of the murder, some lion claws, a crazy mask. It's crazy that a game called Masks has masks. Uh, and I'm then... Sure that incriminated uh, Robeson. Yep, the ledger, that was above. That was above. I was talking about in the basement. Yeah, but that's in there too. And then you guys find a modern marine chronometer, which is what's used on naval ships to keep accurate time. I hope you do. It's expensive. Um, Pat, did you um, did did your uh, anybody in your like campaign like don the masks almost as soon as they found them? No, I don't. I don't think we did. I think we just packed that stuff up because you know. We weren't trying to stay there long to find out what was under that rock. And we kind of just got stuffed in a bag. And uh, we're like, okay, let's go. Because um, we were, by by the end of the campaign, we had so many artifacts we were toting around. We, we probably looked like an antique store as we moved. Um, I recall from England, that's in a section you guys haven't gotten yet to yet but there's a certain statue that you guys haven't found yet that got stolen by the party and uh ian's character broke into Lindsay's flat and basically hid it in there to fuck with her 
in Peru, I was the one that donned the mirror mask, and uh, Dylan put on the mask in the Juju house. You and put nearly, on the, nearly the lost all, all his freaking marbles, too. Yeah, he got down to 12 sanity. That's what happens. Well, when, I, that's, I had that's, staff. that's what yeah. happens when you when you see Asathoth. See, I don't know why we. I really don't think we threw on any of the mask, and you guys are sitting there like this is called Mask of Naruto. We're gonna put on the mask. I don't know why we, we didn't do that. <laughs> we have tried everything. I mean, well, you heard about me pushing my um, Cthulhu Mythos role, well, and how well that went. Yeah, and stuff, and it's like. We, um, yeah, we we tinker with everything, and we've got we we're all learning books and spells and scrolls and stuff like that. This is like the party of like, ooh, a new toy. <laughs> yeah. Also, also the party of like, how big and bad could that thing be? Let's let's poke it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. gi- giant giant maggot monster, we got that. Okay, giant whatever's in that hole. Okay, later, oh, it's, it's like it's a dragon. Just- it's a dragon. I'll set it loose. Yeah, it's <laughs> my interpretation of y'all's campaign so far is y'all are going through mask on a hard mode, and you're not even at the hard mode section yet. So it's like, good lord, are they going to make it? <laughs> well, now that I've got three extra tongues and an extra liver, gallbladder, and lungs and heart, or you know, hey, whoever knows, who knows. Yeah, last uh, last ditch effort. I'm putting on the headdress. I'm wearing the bamboo, and I'm putting on one of those masks next to my sugar, 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 sugar. I say put on and um both masks at the same time. You actually can't just in terms of how they're like designed shape wise. That's a shame. Because <laughs> the bamboo one like actually goes like completely over your head, like down to your neck, and the gold one's a little too wide. Well, if I come back from the first one, then we'll just put the second one on. There you go. Yeah. Hey, yeah. the first one gave me some clues as to what was coming up. I don't think you guys are completely on hard mode, but you're definitely like, like okay, you're definitely like poking some stuff. Maybe you shouldn't poke. Oh. But what what are everyone's thought of uh, New York overall? It was fun. It was fun. It wrapped up really quick. Um, which was good. Like once, once we like after we got detained, it all kind of happened pretty quickly. Yeah, but, I mean, once after the info dump part was over, it was like bam, bam, bam. You know, I think it was like two, maybe three sessions, and we were done with New York after the info dump session. Yeah, I think it's the longest chapter, and just in terms of like, hey, let's get all this info, like at you and then make decisions. And just, uh, it definitely had to set up the whole rest of the game and it did it really well with those different in- info dumps. And, uh, you know, after, I mean, I guess London is obviously the next chronological chronological choice, but well, it's... Geog- geographical. Yeah, it's geographical choice as well. And, uh, you know, it's really, it really opens up from here. You know, it's like you got your setup, you got all your narrative hooks, 
Like where you go from here is uh, your own choice. It's also scary as a game master because, like, secretly you're like, just pick it, just pick England, please. But like, technically, the party can pick anywhere. Yeah, it's like let's go to Shanghai, and it's like, oh shit, how will that change things? Well, I think I I want to say that I think we're gonna probably end up in Egypt next. This. Just because of, like you said, geographical order of things. Well, that mm-hmm. and you've got you've gotten a lot more recent clues about Egypt, the Pinhu Foundation, all the the Egyptian right. people you've been around, well, the fact also, that you're from Egypt. Well, I was just going to bring that up: is that being that my character's from Egypt, I have more resources on the ground there. The one that truly scares me is Shanghai, because we have no resources there. You know, no connections, no nothing other than the clues Jackson gave us, kind of thing, and that we've discovered in other places and such like that. And so, yeah, not even having anybody that can speak any of the languages there is. I was about to bring that up. I wonder if RC in all those books he got got a Chinese like a a Chinese like translation or dictionary. (laughs) Well, the one. Thing I was thinking I might try to do plan-wise is, like, if we do get to Egypt, since my character is from Egypt, is try to use connections there to maybe, like, hire somebody when we end up going to Shanghai that would come with us and can speak at least some form of Chinese. Yeah, being that he's in the import-export business, he might know somebody. And all the chapters do have like little little box outs. Like, do you need to hire an interpreter? Here's some pre-made ones. It's, it's, and about like how that how that service actually worked at the time, depending on the country. No, but I yeah. mean, I could speak Latin. At our last session, we can just like wing it because I just <laughs> ended up being able to speak Latin. To be Latin. fair, you you only spoke it for that one point in time. Oh right, right. But technically, you read it. <laughs> You spoke in tongues, basically, and it just happened to be Latin. <laughs> you yes. looked at the book. You looked at the book at the right angle, and it just made sense in your brain. And then it rearranged your brain. Because Celine does speak French, which is one of the more powerful universal languages, depending on where you are. Africa and Asia being two of the good locations for it. Yeah, and also, too, um, if I'm not mistaken, Shanghai is a uh, English protectorate. It is. It, so, also my character being Egyptian, but also a British citizen, and gives us a little bit of, you know, we do have a little bit of connection in that sense, in the sense that I could probably call on, like, the British embassy or something, you know. Also the fact that you're all scumbags, so you speak Australian. <laughs> I'm probably the sad part is I'm the respectable one out of the party. <laughs> well, does anyone else have any additional thoughts on the New York chapter of Masks? How it sets the game up? How it made you excited to move on? Oh, okay. I was just going to say that it's definitely that stage of the game of the campaign where you can literally see all the switches turning on. Everything is engaged into the adventure. You know, it's like, boom, 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 you know, as 
like things light up. Uh, like, yep, we just turned that part on. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm going. I'm going. Uh, I was just going to say the amount of narrative hooks that we have here. You're just steeped with places to go and things to do and leads to follow up that, uh, you know, it's kind of like you're standing on the precipice and about to take the leap. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I know we went to London, which is, you know, glad that we were able to help Zach in that way. But like he said, you know, it's like a video game, like all these different icons appear on the, you know, the mental map of, okay, we can go here, here, here. And the exploration alone that is ahead, as long as, the you know, our characters survive is good. It's fun. It's also, um, it, oh shoot, now I'm derailing. <laughs> All right, never mind me. <laughs> um, Zach, can I give them a slight clue for their following sessions? Sure. Beware the kitty. That's all I'm saying. That's actually a really good clue. <laughs> Actually, that's like a really good clue for like three different things. That's actually a yeah, well, yeah. I was like, this one's multi-layered, really. Well, I want to thank. Well, I'm going to thank everyone for joining us, and join us next week for our next episode. Thank you. Have a good evening.